Hey, y'all. I'm Erin Haynes, the host of The Amendment, a brand new weekly podcast on gender, politics, and power, brought to you by the 19th News and Wonder Media Network. You've probably heard the news that this election year, our democracy is at stake. On The Amendment, I'm breaking down what that actually means, specifically for the marginalized folks who depend on our democracy the most. This is a show that dives past the headlines and gets clear on the unfinished work of our democracy. Listen to The Amendment now, wherever you get your podcasts. As I think about the challenges of the care economy, I'm struck by the universality of these issues. We all made it beyond childhood thanks to some combination of family, community, and government-supported services. The need for change is clear, even more so after two years of pandemic. And the data supporting these solutions is incredibly promising. And yet, as we've discussed over and over this season, expanding government support for child rearing has been an uphill battle. Build Back Better didn't happen. That behemoth of a bill proved too big to pass, and those of us who thought the care economy was about to see real improvement were disappointed. Even so, I think there's reason for hope. Thanks to the representatives we've spoken with this season, and others like them in Congress working to keep pushing these policies forward, momentum continues. As they do their work in our halls of government, each of us can do our own part by bringing these conversations home, talking about the issues and personalizing them. That's what I want to do this episode. To wrap things up, I'm bringing this back to personal experience. We'll then examine another potentially game-changing policy, universal pre-K, and discuss the road ahead. Welcome back to Women Belong in the House. I'm your host, Jenny Kaplan. I don't have my own kids yet, so in bringing this back to personal experience, I'm thinking back to how I was raised. Luckily, I happen to know someone who can speak to what it was like to find childcare for me and what it's like to fight for these policies in Congress. Plus, she was my inspiration for starting this show in the first place. Great. Okay. Hi, Mom. Hi, Jenny. How are you? I'm great. How are you? I'm okay. As longtime listeners know, my mom, Kathy Manning, represents North Carolina's 6th District in Congress. This season, we have been talking about the caregiving crisis and the care economy generally. And given that you are, in fact, my mom, I want to start off by talking about your personal experience. So to kick things off, what was your experience like throughout your pregnancies and taking parental leave when you had my siblings and me? When I was pregnant with your sister, my first child, I was working at a law firm where I was actually the first woman lawyer they'd ever had. And I was very lucky that they were willing to give me whatever time I thought was appropriate. And at the time, I think there were other law firms that had a three-month maternity leave policy, three months paid leave, which was pretty great. And so that's what I took and then went right back to work full-time. Between that pregnancy and your next one, I know you moved from D.C. to North Carolina. Did things change? Were things any different with your second child, my brother? So when I moved to North Carolina, I joined a very large firm, and there were other women who had had children, so they had an established policy. It was also three months paid maternity leave. 
And the funny thing was, I believe I had just become a partner at the law firm. And maybe three months after I had been made partner, I had to tell my two mentors that I was pregnant with my second child. And everybody seemed to be very happy. I told them I was coming back to work. I did hear a rumor that one of the partners made some negative comment to the effect of, oh, she becomes partner and right away she becomes pregnant. He didn't have his timing exactly right, but I still remember that comment getting back to me. Wow. I'm curious how thinking about balancing caregiving affected your career decisions. Did it affect your career decisions? I was really lucky because I had a couple of different arrangements. Number one, I had found a wonderful, wonderful woman who was our nanny, who came into the house and took care of my kids. And she was extraordinary. And I have often thought that if I hadn't found her, I never would have been able to have the career that I had because I was working really long, hard, unpredictable hours. And I needed somebody who was reliable. And it was still stressful. I still remember those 6.30 in the morning calls from our nanny saying, I'm sick, I can't come in. Or she had her own child during the time, which actually had two children in the time that she worked for us. Or she would call in and say, my daughter's sick, I can't come in, I don't want to get your kids sick. So that was when I really had to scramble. And I had two alternatives. I had created a nanny sharing situation with one of my friends. We had agreed that if we had caregiving problems, we could bring our kids to each other's home. But the other option, and the one that I use more often was, as you might remember, my in-laws lived not very far away from where we live. So the family backup was the most important backup that we had. And we were just really, really lucky. I believe that you also made a change in terms of the kind of law you were practicing. Talk to me about that decision. When you were six months old, I think it was, I had a trial out of town that was supposed to last three days, and it lasted two weeks. And so I left a six-month-old baby and my two older children with my husband, your dad, and the nanny that we had. But I was gone for two weeks, and I was working from six in the morning until three in the morning. It was incredibly exhausting and stressful. And I felt terrible being away from you for two weeks when you were six months old. So when the trial was over and I came back home, I thought to myself, I just can't do this. This is not the way I want to handle my life. So I went to my firm and I said I wanted to change the nature of my practice. I, I just didn't want to be away from home at that point in my life for long trials like that. So I switched to immigration practice. It also was an area of law that really appealed to me. And that way I was able to have a practice that was better for, I felt, for me and my family life. Thank you for sharing your own experience. And also you had lots of friends who had different experiences. So I'm curious, did it shed any light on what the caregiving opportunities were like then for women who were working. And then I want to get into how it's shifted now. There's been an, an enormous shift, and I think it's taken place for a couple different reasons. Number one, I think in today's society, 
there is a feeling on the parts of dads that they want to be more involved in helping take care of their kids. And there's not the division of labor. When I was a child, my mom took care of the kids. My dad went to work every day. And that is no longer the norm. And so I think there is a feeling that this is an issue that families deal with, not just the mom. So there are more people that understand that this whole child care issue is something that's important for us to deal with. The other other issue is there are far more women in the workforce, and we have a need for women to be in the workforce. Right now, we have a worker shortage, and we need as many people in the workforce as we can possibly get. So we can't afford to have a significant portion of our population sidelined because they can't find acceptable options to help take care of their children. Something that stands out to me is the fact that the U.S. is really an exception compared to peer countries around the world when it comes to caregiving policies. Is that something that's being talked about a lot when you're talking with other people in Congress? We talk about that all the time. We talk about the fact that in the United States, taking care of your children is assumed to be something that a family has to worry about. It's not the employer's job or the government's job or society's job to worry about. The people just have to figure out their own solutions. Whereas in so many other developed countries around the world, the job of taking care of children is viewed as as something that society should be concerned about because we want to make sure that workers have access to the workforce, that children have access to good child care, and there's far more investment by other countries in child care, making sure that there's good child care available, making sure that people have those good child care options so that they can get to work. We lag behind dramatically. Yeah, it's shocking. Let's turn specifically to what's been happening in Congress recently. So I think that Over the past year, it's been in some ways an interesting experiment because some of the caregiving policies that many people have been advocating for for years were put into place at least temporarily due to COVID. Namely, the expanded child tax credit was put into place for six months and temporary paid sick leave was put into place for COVID purposes. And yet, even though those policies were put into place, they expired because the Build Back Better Act did not, in fact, get passed. So I'm curious what your take is on the strategy, why you think it failed, what's happening now in Congress, and whether you think these new iterations of of legislation have a better chance of success. The strategy was to get as much done as possible through reconciliation, which was the Build Back Better Act. But basically, it was an opportunity for Democrats to pass the big proposals that they thought would be life-changing for families that needed this care and also help us get people back to work and get more people in the workforce. But by taking the approach that we could get this done through reconciliation, of course, that meant that we had to get it through the Senate and We were stymied by two senators who did not agree with what was in Build Back Better. And it was a large 
bill with lots of important things in it, but didn't take into account the fact that these two senators were not going to go along with it, and that put an end to that strategy. One of the things that I find so fascinating about it, and we haven't even talked about this at all, we haven't talked about universal pre-K. We've talked about child care, but universal pre-K is, to me, one of the most important components. It's one of the things that I thought was the most important in the Build Back Better Act. And one of the senators who stood in the way of this reconciliation, my understanding is, in his state, they already have universal pre-K. One of the reasons that I think universal pre-K is so important is not just so parents have some place to take them to school while they work, but we have in so many of our communities children from low-income families who don't have the advantage of going to preschool, and they don't get the kinds of enrichment and early learning that so many other kids do, kids from more advantaged families. So what I learned early on, long before I came to Congress, but in my work in my own community, what I learned is that kids who don't have access to any preschool and don't have families that stay home during the day to take care of them and and teach them what they might otherwise learn in preschool, a lot of those children start kindergarten two full years behind other children. When I first heard about this, it was hard for me to even understand how could a five-year-old be two years behind their peers? But when you think about all the things that kids learn in preschool, they learn their letters, their colors, shapes. A lot of them know how to read. They can spell their name. They get read to. That's a lot of learning that takes place for three-year-olds and four-year-olds. So kids who haven't had those opportunities, when they go to kindergarten, they don't have any of that learning that they bring with them. And for many of those kids, it's very difficult ever to catch up. When you start off two years behind your peers in kindergarten, it's very hard to make up that learning difference. So from a standpoint of equity and making sure that we are educating all of our children, no matter what neighborhood they live in, no matter what zip code they live in, they all get the kind of start that they need. Universal pre-K is, is an important answer to help address that issue. It's, it's an equity issue as much as it is a child care issue. And I think, to me, that was, that was one of the things that was really a terrible loss when Build Back Better did not pass, that we didn't have the opportunity to put into place universal pre-K. Thinking about that now, there are lots of proposals right now. Lots of work is being done to separate out some of the many things that were in the Build Back Better Act and push forward legislation that tries to pass different components of this separately. Could you talk about some of those and how you think they're doing? So I think universal pre-K is a good example because I think we may find an option for putting together a universal pre-K proposal that we can get some Republican buy-in for. And a lot of the bills that we're going to have to work on moving forward, we're going to have to do in a bipartisan way if we want to make sure we can get them passed. And we may not get the kind of proposal that we had, the fulsome proposal we had for universal pre-K in the Build Back Better Act, but we still might be able to get something that we can get Republicans to agree to. And I think that's probably the way that we're going to have to move forward on a lot of these bills, is to try to fashion bills 
that Republicans would be willing to sign on to. And they may not be what we thought was the ideal provision, but we may still come up with something that provides great relief to American families and also increases equity in terms of education. When we think about childcare, education isn't always our first thought. But early education is just as important for child development as it is for working parents. And despite its understated nature, its benefits are too far-reaching for it not to be a top family policy priority. Some form of free preschool is offered in most states, but it's not federally mandated. It's proven successful in blue as well as red states. Republicans and Democrats alike recognize the potential of this measure. Yet this was another proposal in the Build Back Better Act that was blocked in the Senate. President Biden's plan for universal pre-K would have allocated $110 billion for free, universal, high-quality pre-K for three- and four-year-olds to be doled out over the next six years. To get a closer look at universal pre-K, I'm joined one last time by White Picket Fence host and family sociologist Julie Kohler. As a D.C. resident, Julie's had firsthand experience with universal pre-K and its impact. Hi, Julie. Hi, Jenny. We are back one last time to chat through care economy policies. I'm so excited. I know that D.C. has a comprehensive universal pre-K program. Can you talk about what that involves and what your experience with that program has been like? Sure. I'm happy to talk about this because I'm happy to be a huge booster of D.C.'s public pre-K program. So to start with, D.C. was really one of the first in the nation to invest in early education. And this dates back to the 1960s that D.C. has been offering pre-K in some way, shape or form. That dramatically expanded in 2008 when D.C. enacted what's called the Pre-K Act. And that expanded the D.C. public pre-K program to provide quality, universally accessible pre-K through what's called a mixed delivery system. Basically, what that means is that pre-K is now available through a variety of settings in D.C. There are publicly available pre-K slots in many of D.C.'s public elementary schools. There are publicly funded pre-K slots available through partnerships with community-based organizations. And the D.C.'s Birth to Five Head Start program also helps many children, thousands of children and their families, access public pre-K. So families can access this through a variety of different settings. And also relevant is the fact that, like, what does that really look like? And in D.C., public pre-K operates five days a week. It's required to operate for a minimum of six and a half hours a day and a minimum of 180 instructional days per year. So in my son's experience of starting public pre-K when he was four, really it was like going to public school for him. And his day mirrored the day of an elementary school child. So I saw a classroom that was really teaching children remarkable concepts in ways that were very easily accessible to them. You know, his preschool teacher had children serving on committees where they were learning about how to cooperate, how to problem solve, how to 
work as a group, how to get along with others, how to negotiate differences. They had a heavy emphasis on sort of nature education, would do regular nature walks and had units on lichen and moss and where they would then explore, you know, what does it mean to research something? How do we collect data? How does that teach us how to answer questions? All of these things are highly educational concepts, right? These are children at a remarkably young age learning pretty sophisticated concepts in ways that are part of sort of their natural inclination to explore and have fun and play. And the fact that this was free and accessible to all parents in D.C. is really a remarkable benefit to all families. That is very impressive for four-year-old kids. How widespread is universal pre-K across the country already? What we have is basically a patchwork quilt in this country of highly, highly discrepant systems in every state. So there are six states that have no public pre-K. In most other states, there is some public investment, but what that looks like differs widely. Um, Many states have targeted their public pre-K programs to those children and families who are most economically disadvantaged. And so there are limited slots, but it's not something that's available to all families. Other states and cities and districts like, like D.C. have made it universally available. And one of the things that we find is that once you make a public investment universally available, it becomes much more broadly popular. When we have something that everyone benefits from, it becomes much less vulnerable to attacks or scaling back. And so even though absolutely, you know, low-income families probably need and deserve these benefits the the most, there is real political reason to make this universally available. It really helps enshrine it and helps us move to a different view of pre-K or early care and education as something that is a public good and not something that we need to purchase. I want to talk a little bit more about the benefits of universal pre-K in child and family development. How impactful is universal pre-K for children and families? It's hugely impactful. So we now have decades worth of data of following early childhood education programs and following the children who participate in those programs longitudinally into their school-aged years, into adulthood. And we find a vast array of developmental benefits to high-quality early care and education programs, cognitive benefits, social and emotional benefits. And increasingly, research has started to look at what are the other benefits to these programs that go beyond sort of children's school readiness and children's academic achievement, children's social behavior. We find all sorts of other benefits to families and communities and society more broadly. So not surprisingly, publicly available pre-K means at least two years of reduced childcare expenditures for families. So it's a huge cost savings to families. It also has been found, and this is work by James Heckman, who's a 
Nobel Prize winning economist, to have vast economic return on investment in early care and education programs. His research, which was done conducted in the early 2000s, found a rate of return of 16% and a 12% internal rate of return for society in general. So in other words, early care and education programs have a much higher rate of economic return than many so-called traditional economic development investments that communities, states, the federal government often make. And then not insignificantly, universal pre-K improves and enables parents and especially mothers to participate in the workforce. So when D.C., for example, enacted its Pre-K Act, they found about a 10 percent increase in mothers' workforce participation. So it really helped mothers go back to the workforce. Given all these benefits, it seems like it would be kind of a no-brainer for universal pre-K to pass. So what do you think are the primary barriers for making universal pre-K a reality federally? Yeah, you would think so. You know, and there was actually a period of time, especially sort of in the 90s and early 2000s, when we were seeing real expanses in early care and education that were crossing sort of traditional partisan political boundaries. Oklahoma and Georgia, for example, were two of the first states to really invest in public pre-K for all four-year-olds. So this is not just a sort of blue city or blue state phenomenon. There are red states and cities that have invested in high-quality preschool programs. But that said, you know, at its core, I think we should never kind of underestimate an economic ideology called neoliberalism and that ideological opposition to public spending. And that has really driven a lot of the opposition to expanding pre-K programs more broadly. And that neoliberal or economically conservative ideology has been intertwined with conservative ideologies about families and gender. Taking a step back, thinking about all of the different parts of the care economy we've talked about this season, how does universal pre-K compare when it comes to what has the best chance of actually becoming law? Well, I think there is a school of thought that universal pre-K could be one of the easier things to pass. And maybe if we have to focus on getting part of our agenda through, that maybe establishing a universal public pre-K system would be a really important first step. And it's hard for me to argue against that. However, (laughs) I think there are real risks in cleaving universal pre-K from childcare more broadly. And there's a reason that a lot of the Democratic proponents of early care and education are really fighting for these two portions of the Build Back Better Act to remain intact. The first is that when it comes to children's development and learning, there's really no justification for distinguishing care and education of three- and four-year-olds from that which is provided to younger children. And what it reflects that that we sort of do think of them differently oftentimes is really more about how these programs have been framed and funded over the last, 
I would say, half century. So early preschools were really targeted at middle-class clientele and pitched as educational programs, whereas early childcare programs are often set up as kind of very low-financed, almost like holding places for poor working mothers. If we were to cleave just the universal pre-K portion of the Build Back Better Act from the other child care provisions, there's also a chance that it could have some really damaging effects on child care for younger children. So we have already, as we've talked about, a downwardly spiraling child care marketplace. If we were to take all the three and four-year-olds sort of out of that system and leave childcare to only serve children ages zero to three, basically what we would do is we would make the costs of that system even more expensive. Who are the children that need the lowest teacher-to-child ratios? It's the youngest children, right? It's especially infant. Infant care is the most expensive child care to provide. So if we're removing the least expensive portion of early care and education, making that public, and then leaving privatized just the zero to three years, we are going to drive up costs. We are going to make it less accessible and less available. And also, one of the really important provisions of the Build Back Better Act is the increase in compensation for workers. And in places that have public universal pre-K, like D.C., pre-K teachers are paid on par with elementary school teachers. It's a huge difference in pay. And so if you're an early childhood teacher and you have the choice of working in a public system where you would be paid on par with an elementary school teacher or working in a private setting where you could get paid on average, $12 an hour, what would you choose? So we're going to drive all the resources to a segment of the population and leave this other portion of that system really in dire straits. So even though it kind of makes sense from an incrementalism model to think, let's take what we can get, I think there are some real dangers and potential unintended consequences of handling universal pre-K this way. It's been quite a mini-series. I feel like we've covered such a range of policies that really have the potential to change American families and lives broadly and how we think about our youngest citizens and also parents generally. Yeah, I really appreciate your willingness to partner on this special season because it's been so fun for me to be able to have another chance to be able to bring to the forefront these policies that I think are so important and often don't get the attention they deserve. So I really appreciate the time and the space. And I'm really curious, too, like what what have been some of your takeaways from our conversations to date? I started this show almost four years ago. Because I was curious about why there were so few women in office and and what it would mean if our elected bodies looked more like the people they represent. This is so clearly a series of issues where it really 
has proven to matter that our elective bodies are becoming more and more representative. And it's both shocking that for so long these issues have been deemed like women's issues or they feel sort of soft. And also, I think, heartening that now they are getting more of the attention that they deserve. Yeah, I completely agree. And one of the things I think is so exciting about working with you on this season is that, you know, we we so often frame like policy as like this set of issues over here. And meanwhile, we have politics that's over here. And what I think we're demonstrating through this series of conversations is that these are really intertwined issues. Who we elect, what our elected bodies look like, really has an effect on what policies are prioritized and what do we see action on, what issues are prioritized. And fundamentally, I think it shows that both kind of the political issues and the policy issues are both issues about democracy. How do we ensure that we have leadership that looks like our country, that represents our country, and that's going to prioritize the issues that everyday Americans really care about? One of the reasons why we started season one was because I had this view, thanks to my mom, of what it was like to run for office as like a much more human view than I think we typically get. I think it's pretty rare to consider, you know, the real lives of people in Congress much of the time and in some ways for good reason, because they're there doing a job to represent us. All of these people in Congress, whether they are for or against or somewhere in between these policies, it's almost makes me more optimistic about our ability to convince people to be pro these policies because everyone understands what it's like to have family members of some kind. I mean, we all came from somewhere and are related to someone. So I think that really stepping back into having this conversation with my mom and understanding how as a person she had to deal with caregiving throughout her life and getting that perspective from the other representatives we've spoken with this season. It's just a reminder that all of these people deal with the same human issues we all deal with. And I think it's a good reminder when most of the time we're just reading the news, seeing headlines about what Congress is doing, not necessarily thinking that the people in there are actual people who are going about their lives beyond the halls of Congress. Yeah. And, you know, we've had I mean, I know you've talked about on your show sort of these years of the women, you know, the the last one being 2018 when your mom first ran. And, you know, a lot of times this uptick in women running for office is really fueled by some collective experiences that people have had at these moments. And I really hope that the pandemic and the caregiving crisis may provide an impetus for more women to run for office. I'm going to be really curious to see if this ends up happening. But we've been through a thing in these last two years where, you know, our lack of care infrastructure has been made abundantly clear. And a lot of women especially who still disproportionately assume these caregiving responsibilities have been pretty angry over this lack of support. And I hope it fuels action. And I hope it inspires more people to say, 
I can do something about this. Because when you bring those personal experiences to positions of political leadership, I think that's really where we see some incredibly inspiring change happen. That's one of my favorite sort of facts to bring out that I've shared on this show is that women most often decide to run for a reason because of an issue that affected the person running as an individual or her family or her community. It's really issue-based. We've talked about a huge range of care economy policies over the course of this season. How are you feeling about where we are and where we're headed? I am feeling uncertain. (laughs) So here's the thing. For both of the seasons of White Picket Fence, I've really oriented these seasons around disruption and what I perceived as major social disruptions that had the potential to provoke significant political realignment. So in season one, we looked at Donald Trump's election and what that potentially could do to white women as a voting base. In this last season, we looked at the pandemic and the caregiving crisis that it provoked. And, you know, in both seasons, it was possible and reasonable to think that there would be a real political realignment in a more progressive direction, that both of these disruptions were so significant that they would cause real political and perhaps enduring political shifts. But I think another takeaway or theme of both seasons is how entrenched the ideologies are that uphold the political status quo. And in both cases, the momentum for change has been met with a fierce and well-organized backlash. And I really think it's an open question on which force will prevail politically. And what I'm heartened by is the political leadership that I see, that we've heard from throughout the last four episodes of this special season. And we need to continue our work to expand that, to get more elected leaders that look like their constituencies in every respect, understand the issues that they're dealing with, and can bring those perspectives to their roles as elected leaders. And then it's incumbent upon us to get active and stay active at a moment when anti-democracy forces are being strengthened. I think it's going to have to require additional resolve among all of us who both want to see better outcomes for children, for families, for our economy, and also want to protect a system that is our system of democracy in this country to really continue to fight. It's the only way that we're going to really make the change that we need to see. This was our final episode of this season of Women Belong in the House. Keep an eye out for Thursday's episode of White Picket Fence to further your understanding of caregiving in America. And stay tuned for more to come this year as we head into the midterms. Women Belong in the House is a Wonder Media Network show created by me, Jenny Kaplan. It's produced by Grace Lynch, Maddie Foley, and Taylor Williamson. Original music by Miles Moran. Special thanks to Julie Kohler. Talk to you next time. Hey listeners, Shira here, co-founder of WMN. I wanted to tell you about another podcast I think you'd love called The Suburban Women Problem. 
In the most hotly contested districts in America, suburban women are breaking up with the Republican Party and remaking American politics, transforming their own lives and getting political for the first time. Each week on the podcast, they explore how and why. The show is hosted by three amazing women. Rachel Vindman, who thought she'd be a card-carrying member of the GOP forever until President Trump called her husband a traitor. Jasmine Clark, a microbiologist who's now the first Black woman ever elected to represent her suburban district. And Amanda Weinstein, an Air Force veteran turned economist who left the Republican Party when she couldn't reconcile her faith with the modern GOP. Rachel, Amanda, and Jasmine chat with high-profile guests like Soledad O'Brien and Congresswoman Lauren Underwood, along with suburban women who are doing great work in their own communities. The Suburban Women Problem is produced by Red Wine & Blue. New episodes every Wednesday, wherever you get your podcasts.